A very good morning. It's great to see you all this morning. And you are also welcome here, especially if you are visiting for the first time. Good morning. I love that, Rachel. You've got a lovely rug around you. That's gorgeous. <laughs> We're all um, to do that for next week. <laughs> if you've got a Bible, turn with me to John 8. It's great to see you this morning. We're carrying on our new series this morning, Living Out Loud, looking at how we can live and share God's love to the very many people we all meet every week in the course of our day-to-day -day lives. Whether it's work, or at the shops, visiting people at hospital, or wherever, wherever we find ourselves, we'd all like to be sharing something of our faith in Jesus in ways that fit who it is that God has made us to be. And in the run-up to Easter, we're going to be looking at the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, from Jesus' encounters with his disciples who gave up everything to follow him, though through to those who had no idea of who he was. To see what we can learn from the way Jesus interacted with those around him so that we can do what Jesus has called us to do. Last week, we were looking at Matthew 28 and 22 and the four corners of Christianity and how God has called us to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, to love God with all our heart and soul and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this morning, we're going to carry on looking at the many and diverse ways each of us can live and share God's love in everyday ways to those around us, in ways that sit comfortably with us, in ways that fit with the unique God-given flavor each one of us has been given. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me and let's look at this story together. But before we go there, let me just pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful to be able to come together this morning, this moment, this time, to seek you together, to allow you to, in our lives deeper, to come and be able to be here in such freedom, to stand shoulder to shoulder with one another, to get to know each other better. Lord, we welcome you in our hearts again this morning. We welcome you, for you are who you say you are. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the extraordinary Savior who calls each of us by name again and again and again. And you never stop calling us. You never stop loving us. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I thank you. Amen. So, let's take a look at one of these stories from the Gospel that might give us some kind of insight into the way Jesus interacted with those around him. And as we read this incredible passage, maybe it would be helpful 
to reflect on the way in which Jesus responds to this encounter and to the people involved as we can think about how we in turn have been called to those we meet wherever it may be. John 8, starting in verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with women standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Now, you may have noticed that this, this text in your Bible might be in brackets or has some kind of footnote to it. The, the footnote from this version says, the most ancient authorities, Luak chapter 7, verse 53 to 8 to 11. Other authorities add the passage here or after chapter 7 verse 36 or after chapter 21 verse 25 or after Luke 21 verse 38 with various texts. Some mark the passage as doubtful. And so before we go too much further, should we be evening, even be referencing this text or should it even be in the Bible? Well, despite the questions of authenticity, this passage is generally accepted by the church as being part of the scriptures, which is why we find it in all our Bibles, even if it does have comments and explanations at the footnotes. Some scholars say that the story and the way it's told carry the ring of true encounter between Jesus and a person whose life is in moral freefall. Wherever this story should be put, it has so many elements in it similar to other encounters between Jesus and the brokenhearted that we just can't ignore it. Given that, I think we have enough to be going on with to at least see if there's something in the story that will help us think about how God has called us to be with those we come across in the course of our daily lives. 
And so back to our text. We know nothing about this poor woman other than she's been caught and exposed, having sex with a man who's not her husband. We're not told whether she was the one who was married or whether the man she was found having sex with was the one who was married. But for this to be adultery, it's fair to assume that at least one of them was married. It's probably fair to assume that she is Jewish. The, religi the religious authorities wouldn't have brought a Gentile to Jesus because they wouldn't have had any authority over her. Now, this whole brutal encounter takes place at the temple where Jesus is teaching. And it's all happening right at the heart of the religious establishment in front of the sizable crowd. Everything about this is so public, so humiliating, so unbelievably degrading. And far from the religious leaders really being interested in this woman or in what she is alleged to have done, the text tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes are just wanting to test and to trick Jesus. They're not interested in her in the least. Their only interest lies in getting rid of the problem of Jesus. And so they come to him with this problem, somewhat sarcastically calling Jesus teacher. They don't really respect him, far from it. They don't approve at all of what he is teaching. Now let's pause just for a moment and try to picture yourself, if you can, in her shoes. Dragged half naked from your bed, paraded through the streets, crowds of onlookers staring at you, probably jeering at you, before you get thrown before all these people sitting around waiting to hear Jesus teach. It's heartbreakingly devastating and so unbelievably degrading as this poor woman probably tries to clutch at what little clothing she has. The man, meanwhile, who we must remember is equally guilty of this same crime, has just disappeared down some alley and escapes the whole sorry scene. And for the religious leaders, part of the problem they had was they knew that Jesus was often seen eating and drinking with people whose lives are maybe unraveling, people who may have been struggling with how to do this thing called life. But for them, eating and drinking with someone meant intimate fellowship with that person. It shows connection and compassion and friendship. And Jesus was always, always, always hanging out with people like that. The Pharisees would never have even considered it, as they believed sharing your food with sinners would somehow make them dirty or guilty by association. What is clear is that on this particular day, the religious leaders believe that they have discovered the perfect, the perfect way to expose Jesus. And so they quiz him and try to trap him. Have a look at verse 4. Teacher, 
This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Everyone watching would have known the requirements of the law, which the Pharisees quote for, for Jesus' benefit. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy give the command that those who commit adultery should be put to death. What's interesting is that they only quote part of the law of Moses. They say, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, when what the text actually says is, if a man commits adultery with a man's wife, with his wife or his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are put are be are be to put to death, are to be put to death. Now I am not saying I'm not condoning the death of penalty penalty for adultery, merely to say that those law-abiding religious leaders appear to be selecting just the bits of the law that suit them and suit their needs. And so how is Jesus going to respond? Firstly, there is the requirements of God's law. If Jesus claims to be from God, surely he will know all about the requirements of the law. But if Jesus doesn't give in to their demands and doesn't stone the woman, this woman, the religious leaders will accuse him of ignoring God's word. But then secondly, there is the requirement of Roman law. Because the Roman authorities had made a death sentence, only something that they could order. And so if Jesus gives in and joins in with the stoning, the religious leaders will accuse him to the Romans for breaking Roman law in the hope that he would then be arrested. So what will Jesus do? Will he break God's law? Or will he break Roman law? As the Pharisees and scribes wait to see what Jesus will do, some 2,000 years later, we too wait to see how Jesus is going to respond when faced with the brokenness and sin of this half-naked woman at his feet. We may not be quite so focused on whether Jesus will uphold Mosaic or Roman law, but we really do want to know how Jesus is going to respond to those whose lives are unraveling or to those just caught in a deep and difficult patterns of behavior. How will Jesus respond? How are we to respond Famously, as the Pharisees and scribes ask their question, Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. Pope John Paul II says this of Jesus' response. By his silence, Jesus invites everyone to self-reflection. The religious leaders, partly hoping to trap Jesus, or at least hoping to see this woman judge accordingly, can't have been expecting him to turn things onto them. But that's exactly what Jesus does. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let 
anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And so the accusers become the accused and those wanting to shine a spotlight on this poor woman's vulnerability and shame. Find the searchlight of the Son of God towards them. And once again, Jesus, who still hasn't addressed the woman, leaves the air heavy with silence. Verse 8, and once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. As we think about what Jesus was doing, writing on the ground with his finger, we could speculate endlessly about what he wrote. The text that most obviously comes to mind is the account of the tablets of the law being inscribed by the finger of God. And so maybe Jesus means for us to have this image in our minds. Here is God in the flesh writing the law in the dust of the earth. Whatever Jesus is writing, the silence, the space, the pause left for the Pharisees and scribes gives room for us to put ourselves into the scene. Whatever Jesus is writing, the effect is to cause everyone present and everyone who reads this passage to reflect on our own most serious struggles and recall our most morally embarrassing moments. In the silence, in the pause, it is as if each one of them, and indeed each one of us, is standing themselves and ourselves half naked and exposed before God and crowds of onlookers just like this poor woman. No excuses, no justifications, just the clear acknowledgement of each one's guilt. If we had been present that day before Jesus as he wrote in the dust, not one of us would have been able to stay as the accusers. Like all of them, possibly the eldest first, each one of us would have walked away one by one, leaving only Jesus alone with the woman. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. This poor woman, and in truth, 
The man who should have been alongside her was caught in the act of her sin and brought before the Lord and one undoubtedly guilty. There was no getting away from the fact that what these two had done, both man and the woman, was in fact against the moral code of that time and indeed the law of God. Both the man and the woman would have been found guilty, but the man had sloped off, leaving the woman alone to face the charges. And the truth is, all of us have been caught in the act by God. We may think that our thoughts and acts and our deeds go unnoticed and unseen, but there is nothing hidden from God. There are no such thing as private sin, and whatever particular wrongdoing we are guilty of, each one of us will have broken God's law at some point, probably at many points. It's not going to help us to say, but I haven't committed adultery or done anything serious like that. There's no point in us saying, yes, absolutely, you should condemn this flagrant sinner, but not people like me. I've only done small things wrong. And so just as we can imagine ourselves in the role of the accusers, so too can we imagine in the place of this woman. These men who have come to accuse, to, the, to judge, have shown by Jesus that they too deserve judgment. And if they can show no mercy to her, no mercy will be shown to them. Because the truth is, whenever we truly see our own brokenness and our own sin, we realize we no longer in a position to accuse or condemn anyone, however, however serious their sin may be. The Bible makes it clear that in the eyes of the Lord, we're all guilty. And so now, she is alone with Christ. How will he respond? What will he say? What will he do? Verse 11, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and from now on do not sin again. These are some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Such words of life, words that bring us relief, words of mercy and a refusal to condemn. Jesus invites her to go her way. She is free to go. She is free to go on sinning or perhaps having encountered the Son of God to choose a better way by surrendering her life to him. She, Jesus sets her free and Jesus sets us free. But rather than leaving us where we are, rather than leaving her where she is with all her brokenness and pain, Jesus invites her into to leave her life of sin and go your way from now on, do not sin again. But as any of us will know, in and of ourselves, this is just not possible. But thanks be to God, in and through the power and the blood of Jesus, this is so very possible.
And so whatever you think about this passage, passage, should or shouldn't be in the Bible, the reality is waves of people over the past 2,000 years have been moved by this brief but profound encounter between this woman and the love and the kindness and the mercy and the compassion shown to her by the Messiah. Now, the story is, of course, beautiful in its simplicity and power. But one of the questions for us this morning is, what might we learn from it about how we are to demonstrate the same love and kindness and mercy and compassion to those around us whose lives are unraveling? Firstly, condemnation. Irrespective of her guilt, she has broken the law. She has been caught in adultery. But in spite of it all, Jesus doesn't condemn her. This is to be true of us as well. Irrespective of what's going on in the lives of those around us. John 3.16 famously says, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But the text goes on and says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us, and that's why he doesn't condemn this woman. To condemn her for her actions would surely undermine the very purpose to which the Father sent the Son into the world. And yet many believers assume that condemning the sin and the sinner is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Surely, criticizing, judging, or condemning those who have no faith in Jesus for the way they are living their lives undermines the very purpose of the gospel of Christ. Surely it is Jesus and not the Pharisees who should be our example for how we are to live in this world. The second thing is sin. Do you see the way in which Jesus doesn't really respond to the question, but he remains silent? As we have said, by his silence, Jesus invites us all to self-reflection. Instead of condemning others, Jesus calls each one of us to consider what's in our own hearts and lives. We are always called to first take the log out of our own eye before we can see the speck in someone else's. Our own struggles, our own poor choices, our own sin, our rather large plank where those of others are to seem like mere specks of dust. The invitation from the Spirit of God is for us to consider our own sin before God rather than focus on the wrongdoing of others. 
If we desire mercy ourselves, we need to be eager to show mercy. We are called to imitate the kindness and grace of God. And so as we go from here and think about the ways in which we are living and sharing God's love in everyday ways to those around us, let's be mindful of this woman. Let's imagine ourselves in her place. And at the same time, let's be mindful of the religious leaders and let's do all we can to ensure we're not treating those we encounter the way that they did this woman, but instead are showing the kindness, compassion, and the mercy of Christ.